Thank you, Jennifer. Good morning, or good afternoon. I can't get used to that. Presently, my, my morning devotion is in um, Romans 6. I had mentioned even in some past sermon here how Romans 6 kind of really was a springboard for changing how I looked at my, my pursuit of holiness, how, um, how I needed to be more spiritually minded. And so I plan to do a sermon um, from those opening verses. And then a few days ago, I thought, you know, I've been preaching from the Old Testament here, or from the New Testament, and I thought it'd be good to do a lesson from the Old Testament. And so I changed course, and I, I thought about doing something in Genesis. Uh, beginning last winter, I spent about six months uh, studying the first half of Genesis for the purpose of writing a, a small group study uh, for our church. It's, it was a, it's a lot of work. Um, it's surprising, you know, you're just writing questions. I, when I did the Paul study, I wrote a lot of, I wrote an essay for each chapter, but in this case, I didn't, and it was still a lot of work, especially when you get to those genealogy chapters. Coming up with a 10 or 12 questions was a challenge. But as I look at Genesis, as I look over Genesis and saw what was unfolding, because I'd never studied a book as thoroughly as I did that one because of writing this, this guide. It's my impression that God inspired Moses to write Genesis. He was, Moses was writing this book for the Hebrew people. And he inspired Moses to, to write Genesis so that we might see his providence, God's providence, his plan of salvation for his people. Uh, for my text this afternoon, I chose to go to what could be considered the most pivotal point in the history of mankind up to this point. In fact, I was thinking as Jennifer was reading, um, when it says, you know, Paul says the, the gospel was announced in advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed by through you. That's our text this morning in Genesis 12. Now, since we're jumping into the middle of a book, um, at least some brief background would, might be helpful. As a spot preacher, I get to kind of be a sniper, right, and get to pick out the good texts, right? I mean, if I was here every Sunday, I'd be uh, probably pick a book and start at chapter 1, verse 1, and maybe go inclined to go through it. Um, but I'm jumping right into uh, to one of the great chapters in in the Old Testament, one of the great chapters in the Bible, especially those first three verses. In fact, there's so much packed into these three verses. When I wrote that study guide, all of my questions were generally from one chapter. This study guide only covers the first half of Genesis, Genesis 50 chapters. The study guide that I wrote only covers 25. And so generally, and we have like 26 or 27 lessons. And so generally, each lesson is a chapter. I did one complete lesson on these three verses here in Genesis 12. It's the only lesson that covers such a small portion of Scripture. But the, the sequence in the early chapters is, is well known, especially to all of you, I'm sure. Uh, we start, Genesis starts in the beginning. God speaks the world into existence. 
then next chapter, um, he creates man and woman. Uh, we witness the temptation and fall of Adam, and with it, the promise of a redeemer. And that's a good thing since man uh, pursues evil continually. And so much so, man became so violent and so sinful that he even, um, Scripture says he grieved. Now, obviously, he knew what was going to happen in advance. But Scripture uh, will, uh, there's a word for that. Uh, uh, I think I tried to use, I talked about that before. And um, anyway, Scripture tries to, um, uh, it was a Sunday school lesson. I tried to come up with that word. It's not, anth it's not anthropomorphism, is it? Uh, when we assign a human, what's the word when we assign a human characteristic to God? So I did have the right word, anthropomorphism? Okay. Um, so God, God uh, saw the world as being so terrible, so evil, that he decided to send a flood to cover the earth, sparing only Noah and his family. And what we find in those chapters then following, you know, 9, 10, 11, is that um, unfortunately, even after a reset, because the flood was kind of like a reset, uh, man not only exalts himself, which is what we see in chapter 11, the Tower of Babel, but worships the objects of creation instead of the creator. And so as I'm reading Genesis, it seems like Moses is really trying to chronicle a history of the Hebrew people. And it seems like everything in the first 11 chapters is building up to this moment right here in chapter 12. Because as chapter 11 ends and he's doing some genealogy stuff, he gets directly to Abraham. And Abraham's not really, you know, a primary person ordinarily. He wasn't, at this point, of course, he wasn't the father of anyone. But Moses is trying to show where Abraham came from, where you know, the, the, the Hebrew people came from, or descendants of Shem. That's where we get the name Semite. And so everything in Genesis now is leading to this point. So if you will, please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read just three verses in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, uh, I appreciate Abraham's prayer, uh, Abraham here, <laughs> um, and I do pray that your spirit would be gracious, that I could be, as he prayed, a, a tool, really. Um, don't let me get in the way of the truth here, Lord. This is magnificent. You made magnificent promises uh, to Ab Abram, Abraham, and I pray that these, we can see how these promises apply to us. And with it, responsibility. Give us ears to hear, Lord, the truth that are contained in the scriptures here. And um, may, we, may we be compelled to change, to, to be imitators of Christ because of what we're meditating on this morning. 
We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Now you may have noticed that um, Abraham's name is still Abram here, and, it, and his name won't be uh, changed until the covenant of circumcision is introduced in chapter 17. But for the sake of some simplicity, I'm just going to call him Abraham pretty much all the time. Um, so, and let's be clear at the outset. Um, and, and I think our reading in Galatians, you know, uh, illustrated this. God did not choose Abraham because he was righteous. In fact, the scripture tells us in Joshua that Abraham's family worshipped other gods. They were, they were idol worshippers. And so we have to presume that it doesn't say directly that Abraham was, but it says that his father was, and he's part of his father's family. And scripture's clear that Abraham is credited as righteous because... He believed the promises of God. And there's so much, as I told you, I built an entire lesson around these three, um, three verses, had 12 questions on these three verses, and I'm only going to deal with part of it. There's so much, it's so rich. I think as a preacher, I, could, I think you could preach multiple sermons. I think, uh, in fact, I think I ran across someone, John Piper or someone, who preached three sermons from this text. So Abraham is, is credited as righteous because he believes the promises of God, and these are wonderful promises. Our salvation in Jesus Christ is traced to these very promises, and Paul tells us this in that Galatian that uh, Jennifer read in, uh, in, in chapter 3. The promises are actually linked to a pair of commands, and this is when I studied this, this is something that I didn't notice uh, at first, and in fact, there's some, not all commentators agree, but it seems like um, this, this, there's two promises here. The second command is not obvious, and so I think it's easy to miss the symmetry, the symmetry contained in these three verses. It seems to me that there's a command and three promises, and then a second command and three more promises. Whereas some commentators might think it's just one promise and seven, uh, I'm sorry, one command and seven promises. I think it's command, three promises, command, three promises. The first command is go forth. And the promises are that God will make Abraham a great nation, that he'll be blessed, and that his name will be made great. The second command, if you're looking at your text, if you happen to have it open, the second command is obscured by the use of future tense. When the Hebrew says that God is commanding um, Abraham to be a blessing. He says, you will be a blessing. So that word will is in there to uh, imply future. But if you have something like the NASB, the New American Standard, some translations like that one have a footnote to identify the alteration. It actually translated uh, literally is be a blessing. And I think that's the correct translation. Abraham is commanded to be a blessing. And the promises that follow, of course, you can see in your text, that God will bless those who bless Abraham. He will curse those who curse Abraham. And he assures Abraham that all families will be blessed through him. So I'm going to look at the first, at each command. And uh, that's the substance of, of my message this morning, the command and the promises. So the first command, God calls Abraham to go forth. And that command demands a response. 
And in fact, I would say that the gospel call is effectively a command to go forth. When Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel, he declared the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It demanded a response. He said, repent and believe the gospel. This is in Mark chapter 1. Often when we think of a spiritual calling, we equate it with choosing a direction in life. But in the New Testament, however, the call usually refers to salvation. God is calling Abraham to a life of faith. That's why we think the gospel didn't change from the Old Testament, the New Testament. It's, it's always been um, a, a, a message of faith. Uh, God called Abraham to turn from his old ways and follow him. He, asked, he, he demanded that Abraham repent. When you hear God's call, you must obey or suffer the consequences. Admittedly, the call to go forth often requires difficulty. God's call to Abraham wasn't easy to follow. Abraham was 75 years old, and he was likely established in his community, and yet he was directed to an unknown land. In fact, God didn't even tell him where he was going to go. He says, you're going to go to a land that I will show you. Oh, great. I don't even know where I'm going. Right? And, and so you know in those times he was probably going to face adversity, right? Um, even hostility, right? That he might have to... Um, engage in warfare along the way. And so, of course, our call to follow Christ can also be fraught with challenges. For example, when Jesus says, if anyone does not hate his own father, it's a difficult text, isn't it? If anyone does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus concludes in that passage that the cost of following him can be high. Now, I don't think that Jesus is telling us to disrespect our family. Rather, what he's saying here is that we cannot let family come between us and God. When it comes down to it, we have to choose God over family. We must measure the cost of discipleship. And I imagine, I think many of us are comfortable with our faith as long as we're not convicted to do something that makes us uncomfortable. Now, speaking of comfort, I've never been comfortable with the statement that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there's truth there. I'm convinced that if God has set his love on, upon you, that he does have a wonderful plan for your life. But when people say that, I think they should offer a disclaimer. That wonderful plan may include suffering and sacrifice. In fact, Jesus said, people will persecute you, right? You, he told us to expect persecution. So, on the other hand, just as that one command sort of makes me feel uncomfortable because I think that some people leave that out, I think that we shouldn't be afraid to say that obeying God's commands will lead to blessing. Now, while it may seem presumptuous to suggest that Abraham's blessing applies to us, you know, we're not being told, for example, to pull up stakes and go to Canaan. God does bless those who obediently answer the gospel call. All believers are a part of a great nation. Recall our reading from Galatians 3. 
the, at the end, for scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham. Those blessings apply to us as well. Now, will our name be made great like Abraham's? Well, perhaps not in the same way, but he who overcomes will have his name written in the book of life. In that sense, your name has been made great. The point I would like to drive home is that according to God's good pleasure, blessing is a byproduct of obedience. And honestly, I've kind of shied away from making such claims in the past, thinking that, oh, we shouldn't presume upon God. But I think maybe I've been in error to some extent. Now, God's blessing may not line up with my expectations, but I think it's not only reasonable, but healthy to expect God's blessings. It's plain in scripture, Hebrews 11:6. and without faith, it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. I think that we should expect blessing. If we're obedient, not that it's according to, well, God, I did this and you should give me that. No, we shouldn't presume that way. That is presumptuous. But it's acceptable to expect blessing. For example, um, if you're kind and you're generous and you're loving, it should turn out okay. It may not, according to God's plan, you may be persecuted, you may be reviled, but even then, what happened when, remember when the apostles were persecuted for the sake of Jesus? They praised God for it. We should expect to be blessed. I think that's okay. And we, we should pray for it. Pray for, for the sake of the church, for the sake of, of pleasing God, not for ourselves. Um, God's second command to Abraham is to be a blessing. And this is really why I wanted to preach this passage this morning, because this truth struck me. When I, when I realized that I thought that this was a command, I thought, wow, what does that mean? Be a blessing. And so as I mentioned, I know that the notion of this, of this being a command is overlooked. I did read one commentator who did say, you know, well, there's one command and seven promises. But I think it's, again, a command, three promises, a command, three promises. And so, and, and when I looked in scripture, the exhortation for believers to be a blessing has scriptural support. Um, so before I exp expand on that, I thought it seemed right to say a few words about covenants because I think it bears on our responsibility to respond to these commands. The commands being go forth, respond to the gospel, and, and then be a blessing. Those are the two commands, and I think they, they apply to us. And I thought, this is remember, this is in the context of a covenant. You don't hear the word yet used here in, in Genesis, but it, it's there. Uh, so just a few, a few thoughts about covenants. Put simply, a covenant is agreement. If someone asks you, what's a covenant? I'd say it's an agreement. You can get more technical and get a lot into it, but for the most part, it's an agreement. 
The first instance revealed in, in scripture is sometimes called the covenant of works. Uh, some people call it the Edenic covenant, Eden, you know, uh, Edenic, if I'm pronouncing it right, Eden being the, the root of that word. God uh, made an arrangement with Adam that he could thrive in the garden. You can eat all the th fruit. You can do what you want for the most part. But if you eat, when you eat from the truth, uh, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you do that, you're going to die. Can't do that. Adam failed to keep this covenant, bringing sin and curse into the world. And so then the series of covenants that that follow are often referred to as covenants of grace. Despite man, and the reason they're called that is because man continues to be wicked. So God offers a plan of redemption despite the fact that man is wicked. God pledged to Noah to preserve the earth and mankind, thus providing an, an environment for future redemption. That plan for redemption is outlined again right here in Genesis 12. I really think this is sort of a climax. This is building up to this point. So the, the Abrahamic uh, covenant, as it's called, is announced in, again in chapter 15. It's repeated in chapter 15, Genesis. And then the word of covenant is actually used. It says, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The Lord made a covenant with Abram, or Abraham, in chapter 12. It's reiterated in chapter 15. And the most detailed expression of this covenant occurs again in chapter 17, about 24 years later, 24 years after the call of Abram in Genesis 12. And this is when the covenant of circumcision is established. And that's when Abram's name is changed to Abraham. These are called covenants of grace because God makes wonderful promise to a people that in no way earn God's favor. Abraham was called out of paganism and God continued to have patience with his chosen people time and time again. And I love this series of uh, verses in uh, Deuteronomy and I'll read those um, kind of quickly. If you wanted to turn there, it's, I'm going to start in chapter 7 and then jump to chapter 9. But in Deuteronomy 7 and 7, verse 7, um, the Lord, it says, the Lord did not set his love on you, and that's the, the Hebrew people, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the land of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then he says in chapter 9, do not say in your heart, when the Lord God has driven them out before you, because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Don't say that, is what scripture is saying. It is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is dispossessing them before you. And then in verse 6, chapter 9 of Deuteronomy, Know that it is not because of your righteousness that the Lord your God is giving you this good land to possess, for you are a stubborn people. These are, this is a covenant, and while these are called covenants of grace, there is still a matter of responsibility. From Genesis 17, God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants, after you throughout their generations. 
So returning to our, I think there's responsibility with covenants. There is responsibility with these commands. Now, if, Nate, if Abraham never went forth, if he never, you know, pursued, went to um, uh, Haran and then went to Canaan, um, then I suppose that God couldn't do these blessings. And of course, he ordained that he would. He gave him the grace, you know, to, that he would have faith and that he would believe. But there's responsibility. And the second responsibility is to be a blessing. The promises of blessings to other people will be accomplished by God. We don't do that through our obedience, but God uses us as, as a conduit. We can bless others, right? And so we're God's conduit, so to speak. And so, again, um, notice even in this, if you look at chapter 12 in Genesis, you see over and over the phrase, I will, I will, I will, I will. God is doing that. God will do these blessings, but he'll do that through us. So to be the commandment, to be a blessing, I, I argue this, this afternoon, that is our responsibility. That's as a preacher, I am saying, we need to be a blessing, and especially a blessing to the church. We should be a blessing to all men, but especially to other believers. And so I'm, if I had to do this sermon over again, or at least give Martin the, um, the stuff over again, I might have chosen for my New Testament passage, 1 Peter 3. So if you have a Bible, um, you can turn to 1 Peter 3. If not, I'm going to read them anyway. I'm going to read two verses, 8 and 9, because I think, I think the Apostle Peter supports this notion to be a blessing. And I'm going to use this to amplify my teaching on, on the promise of Abraham, and that's extended to us to be a blessing. So 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing, being a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit blessing. Again, it sounds like a covenant, right? He's saying, be a blessing, give a blessing, be a blessing, so that you might inherit a blessing. Be a blessing so that you might inherit a blessing. Sounds like an agreement again, like a covenant. We have the responsibility with, with these wonderful promises is responsibility. It's not a matter of you pray the sinner's prayer and I'm in, I got my golden ticket. And then you just say, oh, I'm gonna live the, you know, any way I want. That's not the gospel. Jesus called us to repent, right? If, if, if we truly believe, we'll be compelled to, to, to serve him, to follow him, to repent, to love one another, count others better than ourselves. We can't do that naturally. We need his grace, but there is responsibility when it comes to the gospel call. And I would say one example of that that Peter's using is be a blessing. So we look at verse nine, we have been called to be a blessing so we might receive a blessing. And it's a lot like the promise made to Abraham. Be a blessing to others and God will bless you and the recipients of your kindness. 
again, I, I don't think we should be motivated to be a blessing like, well, if I give to the poor, then God's going to give me more back. That, may, that might happen. That's not why we should give, right? That's not why we should be generous. We should be, we should be generous because it's the right thing to do, right? It's what God wants us to do, even though it's contrary to our nature. And if God sees fit to bless us in accordance with that, then praise the Lord. And he is going to bless us. It may not be the way we want. He may not, like, put more money in our bank account. But he will bless us. It's up to God, you know, what that, how that blessing is constituted, right? But God will bless us. So what does it mean to be a blessing to others? And I think it's explained in verse 8. Hey. Harmonious. Harmonious. Sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil. We might have all, we might probably have some reasonable ideas of what these five traits mean, but I'd just like to take a brief look at each one. First, we should be harmonious. Now, when I first saw this, I thought it meant being a peacekeeper, striving for unity. But the text literally means being of one mind. And since Peter is speaking to the church, we need to recognize that we might have different tastes, right, different preferences, but I think we're obligated to find unity in the essential truths of the gospel. You know, my wife, I'm not on social media, but my wife is, has a Facebook account, and she came across a thread of some people that were complaining about their old church. I don't think that's harmonious. I don't think that they're, by, by getting your bitterness out there about your old church, you know, maybe their old church needs reform, right? But, but that's not harmonious. That's not being of one mind. That's, that's just venting your bitterness, right? I don't know that you're blessing God's people by complaining about other Christians. What we need to do is try to find some unity, right? Try to set some basis for unity and say, well, yeah, maybe you should do this differently. But at least we can be of one mind that we're saved by grace through faith. Right? That, we, that we both you know, believe wholeheartedly in the inspired word of God. So uh, being harmonious is, is not so much an active peacemaker, but being of one of the same mind. Second, we are called to be sympathetic. Uh, John Piper says it's a feeling, it's feeling what others feel so that you can respond with sensitivity to the need. So it's not just saying, I can someone tells you something bad, you know, oh, I can relate, or I know how you feel. Because that sometimes is even less than helpful, I imagine. Sympathy, he says, rather, sympathy is, is a quiet, time-sensitive, present-intensive way of feeling. Peter's trying to get us to change the way we think. And... So this kind of, this notion of being sympathetic is, is maybe being contrary to the way I am. As a guy, I'm a fixer. And I've been married over 30 years, and I still, when my wife tells me things, I still don't get it that she just wants support, right? I want to fix it. I want to rationalize. I want to try to explain why the other person did what they did. She doesn't want to hear that now, right? Even if I'm right, it's, 
So being sympathetic, that's something I have to learn. And, and being, being patient, being sensitive, thoughtful. The next is being brotherly. That means, I think that means treating others as family, not distant relatives, right? Um, because family bears with each other's burdens. People in the church can be needy. Some people can be really needy. And as a teacher, as a high school teacher, I mean, I was just telling somebody the other day, I've had a pretty good year. Because usually there's a handful of students, all it takes is one or two kids to ruin a whole class. It really does. And a, a knucklehead can really ruin a class. But honestly, one of the students that was the most bothersome to me was a student who was, she was really needy. She wore me out. And when she transferred out, I was like, yes! She went from honors to regular, and I was like, praise God. Um, but I, I, I'm being told here that I really need to practice brotherly love, especially to those, at least those in the church, especially, he's telling the people in the church, practice brotherly love, bear with each other's burdens. Yes, some people are going to be needy, but they're family. They're family. So we, we have to remind ourselves, you know, they're family. We're family. And so when we say brother, we say I love you, um, I hope we mean it. I hope I, we're family. Fourth, we should be kind-hearted. And again, this doesn't seem to be a word that's describing conduct. I kind of, as a doer, I want to... Think of all these words as things I have to do, and it's almost like Peter's saying, no, it's, you've got to change the way you think, and then maybe you'll do the right thing. I think it, being kind-hearted means having a tender spirit. And aren't you impressed by people who have that? There are certain people you meet that you know, he has or she has such a tender spirit. And the literal translation of the Greek is kind of odd. It, um, feel generous in your belly. That's what the word means literally, the Greek word here for kind-hearted. It's the kind of compassion that's so deep that it compels us to respond. And we often see this used of Christ. You, you recall when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. You know, Jesus didn't, Jesus' purpose of coming here wasn't to heal sick people. He said, I came here to preach the gospel. That's why I have come. That's what he told his disciples after he healed a bunch of people on the next morning. This is in Mark 1. And he says, this is why I have come. But he couldn't help it. He had the power, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Fifth, believers should respond to one another with humility. This means having a lowly spirit, recognizing that we are unreservedly dependent on God. Paul says to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I really, I hate those verses. I mean, I find it so difficult to count others better than myself. So one of the things that you hate about preaching is that, is that 
you, your, own, your own shortcomings get exposed. And that's what I see when I, when I read this list. And I hope, I, I hope that it can change me. You know, I, I preach what's beneficial to me, hoping that it's beneficial to you. John Piper suggests that all five of those words are descriptions of what we are on the inside, not primarily how we act. And so, while I agree, this is also the mindset of someone who seeks to be a blessing to others. It's sort of, I have a, um, I type out my whole sermon just because it helps you with word choice. And so, I mean, I obviously I say a lot of things that aren't on here, like right now. But I put, I put little, I've, I've gotten more literary, you know, lately, you know, last few years. And I, I, now I'm writing it like an article, you know, and I put little text. And I put from the inside out. And I think that's what's happening here with what Peter's saying. He's challenging us to change from the inside out. So, and it's a, it's a wise move, right? I mean, you want your children, when we train our children, we want our children to obey, and sometimes it's like, do this. But ultimately, we want them to do it because it's in their heart, right? We want them to do it because they know it's the right and proper thing to do. We want them to do it because they know it'll please mom. We, we want them to do it because it'll please God. We, we want them to have a reason for doing what they're doing that it's an expression of what's of the goodness in their heart, right? So as we pursue the development of these godly dispositions, we should expect to act and to bear fruit. Jesus says the tree is known by its fruit. If we possess a common mindset, are truly sympathetic in feeling, exhibiting a family love, a familial love, being kindly disposed with a humble spirit, we will be a blessing to others. Now, we probably shouldn't need to start a new year just to have an excuse to pursue godliness. But I, I do find this time of year to be a, a good time to evaluate past trends and start new ones. For example, for me, I am trying to be more sympathetic and kind-hearted. Um, which I, in my men's Bible study, we're being challenged to be more generous. And, I, and from my preparation for this sermon, it occurred to me that I might do a better job of being more generous if I was sympathetic and kind-hearted. Does that, does that make sense? If I have compassion for someone's need, I'm more inclined to be generous, as opposed to saying, well, I'm supposed to be generous, so why don't I do this? Do you follow? I, at least that's how I'm reasoning it. Um, so I'm trying to work on that. Another thing I'm trying to work on is, is I find myself to be a complainer. I complain about a lot of stuff. And if you stop and think, you know, I think I told you about, you know, um, the story about, did I tell you in a past sermon about Paul, about how he, somebody asked him about Romans 7, did I, do you remember me talking about that? 
I think it's a great little, so um, J.I. Packer was um, a guest teacher at a Christian school years ago, and um, a student there, he, he set up office hours so people could come and have one-on-one -on -one time with Dr. Packer. And so this uh, young man who was not yet, who would, who would later become a pastor, he goes, he, he sees Dr. Packer, and, and, and so uh, Doc, uh, Jim Packer says, well, what do you want to know? And he goes, Romans 7. Romans 7. I just, I don't get it. And that's the chapter about Paul struggling with sin. How is it that Paul, this mighty man of God, seems like he's struggling so much with sin? If Paul can't be victorious, if Paul's got this struggle, how am I supposed to do it? And Dr. Packer tells him, he says, imagine that you have a, a, a white shirt, a brand new, beautiful white shirt, and you get just a little stain on it. That's going to really bug you, isn't it? Paul was so aware of his sin that even those little sins bugged him because he really wanted to be his best for God. You know, we sing that hymn, I Surrender All. He really did try to surrender all. And so I, the older I get, I see myself as, I see more, more of my sin. Does that make sense? And it's not that I'm more sinful than I was when I was younger. I hope I'm having some victory now and then, right? I hope that I'm, I'm making some improvement, right? And my kids tell me that actually they think, you know, like I told you about Romans 6, they say that they've seen some positive change in my life the last couple of years. Not that I've arrived or anything, but I am more aware of my sin, and I am so aware of, of my complaining. When I drive, I judge people. You know, we judge people, we're complaining, right? I judge people all the time. And I don't even know it half the time. And I think in the past, I just wrote it off. But now I notice it. I could be praying while I'm driving and, I can, and then start complaining. Right in the middle of a prayer. What? I caught myself doing that the other day. So while I'm tempted to just pursue the conduct of being more generous and being less of a complainer, I'm thinking that I would be wise to work on the root, the, the root cause of my sinful dispositions, that I need to change my, ask God to change my mind, my heart. And, and in so doing, then maybe a, a, a heart that's, that's predisposed, or, or disposed, rather, of being kind-hearted, of being humble, of being brotherly, that maybe then I will be inclined to do less judging, to be more generous, to be, do less complaining. So, as you know, in my position as a preacher this afternoon, so then I'm compelled to challenge you. I've challenged myself 
I challenge you. So consider your attitudes, your heart. Look at these five things here in 1 Peter. So I, with the help of the Holy Spirit, and maybe my nudging, um, perhaps the, God will inspire you to be a blessing to others. Amen?